Heavenly Father, today as we have been worshiping you through music and prayer and story, may you continue to speak to our hearts through the story of Jesus. Bless us now in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as our tour stopped there in the town of Capernaum, you can see it at the top of the, the lake there. We've been all over the lake. The last three weeks we've been in Capernaum. Uh, next week we finish the series in the town of Bethsaida, which is at the top of the map, map as well. When our tour stopped there, we went into the town of Capernaum, and there's several things you can see. Here's, here's the gate. Capernaum is what they, how they put it there. It's Capernaum. You go through the gates and you got this building, which is kind of a modern building that I don't even know what it is. You get a little toll area to actually go into the town. You have to pay money to go visit it, which is fine. But there was one structure that our tour guide, uh, Andy Nash, had said, guys, there's going to be a strange building in there. You'll, you'll see the, the, uh, uh, where they worship, but then you have this building. Here's a picture of it. Look at this thing. It looks like a UFO crashed in Capernaum. Look at that. It's actually a church. The Catholic Church built this over top some of the, the ancient ruins or the ancient leftovers of this city. And underneath this UFO structure is this building here. Go ahead. It probably just looks like dirt and rocks to you. This is Peter's house. In fact, it's, it's, it's pretty well documented that this is his house. Archaeologists have dug around it. They've even found ancient graffiti in the walls of this, this house. We, we're pretty sure that this is Peter's house. It doesn't look like much, does it? It's, it's just a little, it's kind of like in a, an octagon there. And then you've got the inner place as well. You see the, the stones, the foundation. It's not much. Yet Peter, he probably had one of the bigger houses in Capernaum. But his house... Y'all, we have bathrooms that are bigger than his house. I mean, we're talking a couple hundred square feet. It's a very small house. And as we walked into the church, this, this structure, this UFO structure above Peter's house, it was very quiet in there. There was a sign that said, please no cell phones and no talking. And we walked in and there were priests and nuns there that had journeyed to this spot because of the connection with Peter. And so they were quietly praying. And as, we, as Jen and I continued walking around, there's a glass floor in there. Here's a picture of it. You can look straight down from the top where the roof would have been, down into Peter's house. And as we stood there, I thought, this is where it happened, right here. And I said it to Jen, kind of whispered, Jen, this is the spot right here. And it's the spot where our story takes place today. And, and if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, we get to read the story together. Mark chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, that's okay. Or maybe you're new to Bibles. There's a blue book in front of you. It's the Bible, and you can follow along on page 708, and where we'll read our story together. As you're turning there, I'll just talk a little bit more. Jesus has been doing ministry in different places. He's back in Capernaum, and people flock to him because they want to be around him. They want to hear what he has to say. They want to be in his presence. They want to experience Jesus firsthand. And here's how Mark records this story. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I'll give you a few more seconds to find it. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. Here's what my Bible says. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So typical Jewish custom says that if you leave your front door open, anyone can come inside. 
Just, it's just an open invitation. So Peter opens his door and the crowd comes. Jesus walks in and the people crowd around him. They're, they're stuffed inside. The Bible talks about how so stuffed inside that they were stuffed outside the house too. Uh, this is a people that want to be with Jesus. They'll do whatever it takes to be with Jesus. So many people are jammed in there. It spills out into the, hall, the, the, the streets outside. Definitely standing room only. If they had fire marshals back then, they would be in trouble. And as I think about this crowd, I'm reminded of last week as we talked about the woman that was bleeding for 12 years and she couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd that was stuffed in there. These are people that are craving to be with Jesus. They'll do whatever it takes to get to Jesus. They're craving him. And as I was thinking about these people that are crammed around Jesus, craving him, it made me ask this question I'm gonna ask you now. Do you crave being with Jesus? I mean, a lot of times I think we, we, we love Jesus uh, on our schedule and on our terms, but do you crave Jesus? Do you crave him like you crave a shower after you get out of the ocean and you're sticky and sandy and salty and the only thing you want is a shower? Do you crave Jesus that badly? Do you crave Jesus as much as you crave chocolate? And somebody said, yes, amen. Just this last week, one of our church members, you know her well, I will identify her shortly, she decided to post something on Facebook just to share with the world her feelings, and I didn't ask for permission because it's on Facebook, it's already public. She had an experience at a local restaurant, and she decided to share her craving, and here's what Pastor Jennifer Bergherm shares on Facebook. Here's what it says. If you can't see it, I'll read it for you. Dear Chick-fil-A, open, it's an open letter, dear Chick-fil-A, Please consider changing your mobile order app to allow for additions after one has completed their order. One may determine that one does in fact need that chocolate milkshake that one decided against in the initial ordering process after sitting in the drive-through a while. That's right, I said need, you heard me. So please help a girl out and allow for additions to be made. Sincerely, in need of chocolate. <laughs> Do you crave Jesus as much as you crave chocolate. These people that are jammed in Peter's house, they're craving to be in his presence. They just want to be around him. They just want to hear him speak. They just want to, to be, uh, experience him. And it's in the middle of this crushing mass of humanity around Jesus that we are introduced to somebody that is really struggling. He's really, really struggling. He's paralyzed. I don't know how bad his paralysis was. Did he have a stroke and he just had like a droopy face? Maybe he was a uh, paraplegic and couldn't use his legs. Maybe he even fashioned a little wheelchair or a wagon where he could pull himself along. Maybe he was quadriplegic and, and couldn't do anything and just kind of laid there and, and people had to help him. Whatever it was, he was hurting in a bad way. I remember not too many years ago, uh, I, went, I was a member at the YMC that was YMCA that was very close to my house, and I'd go work out there, and, and uh, I'd go early, about six o'clock in the morning, and there was a guy that was always there too, every day, so very consistent. He had a red pickup truck, and he would park in the handicapped spot right in front of the YMCA, and I would watch him get out if, if I got there at the right time, I could see him getting out, and he had a system down pat. He had his wheelchair 
folded up and taken apart inside the cab of his truck right next to him. He would grab the chair and he would unfold it and set it outside his truck. Then he would take the wheels and attach them to the wheelchair. Then he would lower himself out of his truck down into the wheelchair. And I'd see him in the gym working out. He'd be on the rowing machine and he'd be on uh, some sort sort of a bike. I'd often see him laying on the floor on the mats there doing crunches. And as I would pass him, he would smile and he would be cheerful and he would be happy despite his condition. Now, I don't know what this guy in our story looked like, but it's gotta be something similar, yet his smile is never on his face. He's not chipper and happy. He has to rely on someone else for everything, to feed him, to bathe him, to clothe him, to help him go to the bathroom. He's physically helpless, but it's much more worse than that. My favorite Bible commentator, Ellen White, she writes these words in the book of Desire of Ages. She says these words. The palsied man was entirely helpless and had sunk into despair. This paralytic had lost all hope of recovery. His disease was the result of a life of sin. His paralytic is miserable. He's helpless and hopeless, but not only is he discouraged about his physical ailment and struggle, he's discouraged because of the sin that is in his life. And we don't know what sin it was or what action it was or his life of sin that caused him to be paralyzed. I don't know what it's like. Maybe he, was a, maybe he was a drug dealer on the playground selling meth to kids and the, the cops came and, and he, he decided to run away and he jumped off this, this cliff and, and snapped his legs and he is paralyzed. See, my, my imagination gets a little ahead of me sometimes. I mean, I don't know what happened. Maybe he was having an affair and he was in bed and the husband came by and beat him so badly that he was paralyzed for life. I, I don't know what happened to him. Maybe he was a thief. Maybe he, he stole somebody's Tesla and, and put it on, what, plaid? Is that what it's called? The, the mode that you can go super fast? What's it called? That one, yes. And he floors it and loses control, control of the Tesla and he flips it and rolls it and he's paralyzed because of it. We don't know what happened to him. But whatever the situation was, he's paralyzed because of his life actions. His sin in his life caused him to be paralyzed. So not only is he physically paralyzed, but he's also spiritually paralyzed too. He's covered in shame, he's covered in guilt, and his outward condition is a reminder of what his inward condition is like. He's embarrassed, he's guilty, and everybody knows it. He's been to doctors, he's been to the Pharisees, and he said, guys, can you help me? And they've looked and examined his life and looked back in his history, and they've said, sorry, bud, we're gonna leave you to what they call the wrath of God. In other words, you you can't be forgiven, buddy. You're on your own forever and ever. And so every time that he would see his paralyzed body, it would remind him of his life of sin and that he was unforgivable until one day when he hears about Jesus. He hears about somebody that's full of compassion for sinners. One who heals not only physical issues, but heals broken hearts and broken lives. Somebody that relieves pain and suffering and guilt. And he has this glimmer of hope. It's just a little twinkle of hope. It's not a lot. It's just enough, though, that he's willing to tell his friends. He's got some good friends. They're not just your average friends that say, oh, you're in our thoughts and prayers. They're willing to do something with him. In fact, they say, listen, 
paralytic. I don't know what his name was. The next time Jesus is around, you have to see him and we'll help you get there. And so the next time Jesus comes, he is ready to do some action. In fact, in the book of Desire of Ages, Ellen White, she writes these words. She says, page 267, he feared that the pure physician, that's Jesus, would not tolerate him in his presence. Yet it was not physical restoration he desired so much as a relief from the burden of sin. So he's stuck in this place where he has hope, hope that Jesus can do something for him, yet he's worried that Jesus won't tolerate him in his presence. And you see that he doesn't care about his physical healing as much as he does his, his, his spiritual healing. The man is scared. He's feared that Jesus would not tolerate him. He's terrified that Jesus is gonna push him away like everybody else. And as I'm thinking about this man in this story, it makes me ask this question to you. What paralyzes you from going to Jesus? What paralyzes you from going to Jesus? Of course, none of us want to admit it, but every one of us has stuff that gets in the way where we could be in the presence of Jesus, yet we're paralyzed. It keeps us from believing the truth that Jesus loves us no matter what, that he'll forgive us no matter what, that he doesn't condemn us or judge us. He loves us. See, I, I've heard every story you could think of. As a pastor, people come to me all the time and they wanna share um, what their life has looked like. If you can dream it, I've heard it. And I've heard this generic story over and over again. Just several years ago, a church member came to me and they were sharing their heart of a situation that happened long ago. And I don't know if it was with an uncle or a father or a blind date, but they were abused. And ever since then, they've never been able to see themselves like Jesus sees them. They've only been, ever, they've only been able to see themselves as broken and unworthy. They can't ever see the fact that Jesus sees them as worthy of his entire life that he gave for them. And, and although you may never have experienced that, I bet there's a bunch of people in here who have. For others of you this morning, the trauma that you've experienced in life that paralyzes you is completely something else. You're the only one that knows what the paralysis comes from. Some of you this morning are numb because of baggage that's happened with past relationships. Maybe it's a broken marriage. Maybe it's just broken families. Some of you this morning are paralyzed and you're numb from being let down by other people over and over and over again to the point that you don't trust that Jesus won't let you down either. Some of you this morning are paralyzed and you're numb because of whatever current struggle you're facing. And you think, man, I can't get out of this. And if I can't get out of this, then how can Jesus help me? Some of you are numb this morning because of something that happened between you and somebody else and you won't forgive them and they won't forgive you and you impose your struggle with forgiveness on Jesus like he can't forgive you too. What paralyzes you this morning? What keeps you away from Jesus? It doesn't matter what church it is. Adventist churches, Methodist churches, you name the church, wherever, whatever state they're in, I've seen it over and over again that churches are paralyzed from getting to Jesus. And the place that I see it the most is on communion Sabbath. We haven't had communion here since, since I've been here yet. It's scheduled, it's on the calendar, but I already know what will happen. It's the same thing that happens in every other church. Attendance drops. And I think, why is this? Do people not like bread and grape juice? 
I honestly feel like it's, it's the part that Seventh-day Adventists participate in before we have communion, before we have the bread and the grape juice. It's the foot washing. And I don't know if it's because it's awkward or because you can't find somebody to participate with, but the beautiful part of the foot washing is it's a re-baptism, just like Ricky this morning as she's baptized, as she's a fresh, clean start with Jesus, as she says, uh, I, I confess, I repent, God wash me clean. That's what foot washing is. It's your opportunity to say, God, I am unworthy and I want you to wash me. And, and in fact, I think the biggest reason why we struggle with our communion Sabbath attendance, when, when we finish the sermon and, and we say, okay, let's go into separate rooms and let's wash each other's feet, and there's a mass exodus of people that head for the parking lot so that they can go home and avoid it, I think it's because we feel so unworthy of God's grace for us, and it paralyzes us from getting to Jesus. What paralyzes you this morning? And whatever it is, whatever keeps you away from being with Jesus, it's times like those that we need friends that will push us toward him. In fact, that's what happens in this story in verse three. We're only in the third verse, y'all. Are you getting hungry yet? We got time, plenty of time. Here's what it says in verse three. Some men came, bringing to Jesus a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. I've always imagined this story. I've seen pictures and artists have drawn this, and the way I've always seen it is a, a two-story atrium in the middle of this unbelievably beautiful house. There's skylights along the top. There's lots of light coming in. All the crowd is gathered around in a nice orderly form. There's a beautiful circle around Jesus, and he just stands there and he's, he's teaching. But after being there, oh, it's not like that at all. I think inside, it's more of this dark, dimly lit room. Maybe there's a candle flickering in the corner. It's jammed with people. It, it's hot. It stinks in there because people are there. It's, they're all crushing around Jesus. And these four friends, they bring this paralytic to Jesus. They'll do whatever it takes to get in there. And, and they, they can't get in the house. They can't even get to the door. And I don't know if there were steps on the outside of the building that took, that took them up to the top, or, or maybe they borrowed a ladder. I don't, maybe they did a gymnastic too high as they braced each other and got him up on the roof. Whatever they did, they got on the roof and they started pulling away the, the clay and the thatch on the top. And I always imagine myself on the inside of the house when I read this story, and it's dark and dim, and then you hear this scratching on the roof, and you think, what is that? And, and did they have rat problems in here? Like, what is this? And, and, you, and it's dark until this, this beam of light comes blasting in on, into the room because they've pulled the thatch away, and this body comes down, and a crowd surfs over to where Jesus is. These people, they don't care if they're destroying someone's house. They don't care if they're embarrassed about what's happening. These friends will do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. And I think to myself, what great friends this guy had. Man, they're willing to go the extra mile to do whatever it takes. And I ask myself, and you too, are we that kind of people that would do whatever it takes to help somebody get to Jesus? Do we have compassion on those that need it the most? Are we a church, the Forest Lake Seventh-day Adventist Church, are we willing to help anyone get to Jesus? Or do we only help those that fit the mold that we want? The, the, the race that we like? The, the, the socioeconomic status that we like? 
the marital status that we want, the, the right political views, the, white, the, the right um, perspective on COVID? Do we discriminate on who we will help? And even closer than reaching to people that aren't in this room, are we willing to do whatever it takes to help each other in here? See, I find myself, and, and many of you too, uh, when someone needs help, we do the same thing. We say, I'll pray for you. And sometimes that's the best thing. But sometimes people just need some financial help. Or maybe they need a place to stay. Or maybe they need you to listen to them and just sit down and just be in whatever they're experiencing that moment. Are we willing to do whatever it takes to help someone get to Jesus, no matter if they are single, if they're divorced, if they're employed, if they are vaccinated, or if they're even a legal citizen? I'm glad this guy had some good friends because they help him get to Jesus and Jesus does the rest. Verse five, here's what it says. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And we pause there for a moment to decipher Jesus' words. You've always thought of this, or maybe you haven't, but many people have talked about it. Who's the they in here? Their faith. Is it the four guys, the friends? Could be. Is it all the people in the room? The they that is just surrounding Jesus. Whoever it is, it's not the paralytic's faith that moves Jesus' heart to work on him, to, to, to heal him. It's somebody else's faith, someone that believed for him and Jesus was moved to action. Do you have friends like that? Have you surrounded yourself with people that will get you to Jesus, that will lift you up, that inner, that inner circle, the ones that believe for you? When I was a little boy, my mom would always say this, and I, I tell it to my two boys too, who you choose to be your friends is the most important decision in your life. Because the friends that you have will either lift you up and carry you to Jesus, or they'll pull you away from him. And I don't care if you're seven years old this morning or you're 70 years old and you've got a, a friend network that's, that, that's across the country and the world. Choosing friends is so important, and I wonder this morning, maybe you need to reevaluate your friends. Jesus says, because of their faith, son, your sins are forgiven. And if I'm standing there in that room, it's not what I expected Jesus to do. I, I kind of Jesus expected to bust out in the song, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give thee. In my name, get up and walk. Or maybe he would just say, hey, pick up your mat and walk, bud. I kind of imagine Jesus spitting in the dirt and making a poultice and putting it on his kneecaps and the guy's healed. But he doesn't heal his physical body first. That's not what he goes for because Jesus sees past the physical ailment and he goes straight to the guy's heart because that's what matters more. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiveness, or are forgiven. It's like Jesus says to this paralytic, whatever you did is done. No matter your sin, you're still my son. You're forgiven. And I can't even imagine the relief that swept over this guy He's free. No longer does he carry this burden of, of being a sinner and this physical reminder every day of what he'd done. 
Jesus continues on and he gets into mouth to mouth and heart to heart combat with the Pharisees. See, Jesus is reading the Pharisees' hearts. He knows what they're thinking. They've been looking for a way to attack Jesus and he's just committed blasphemy. He says he's forgiven someone. He says, he says he's, he's taken away sins and only God can do that. What's funny is that Jesus doesn't have to prove himself. He doesn't have to get anyone's approval. Yet he speaks to the Pharisees in verse nine. Here's what he says. Verse nine, just a few verses down. Which is easier, he says, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. He says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go, go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This morning, there are so many applications in this story that I don't even know where to start. And you're gonna have to decipher it for yourself and figure out which shoe fits you best, what application works best in your life. And you may not know right now, and that's okay, but here's some that I've thought of, and it's different people and situations in the story. This morning, you might feel like the paralytic. It's you're paralyzed with stuff that you're dealing with. I don't know what it is, drama, maybe it's baggage, maybe it's hurt but it clings to your back like a monkey that never lets you go. And maybe this morning you need to hear the voice of Jesus say to you, whatever you did is done. No matter your sin, you're still my son, you're forgiven. For others of you this morning, you might not be like the paralytic that had great friends. You might find yourself surrounded with really poor friends. Recently I was thinking of a, a young person in our church that's God's really moving in their heart and I thought man if they could only make better decisions with their friends maybe that's you this morning where you need to reevaluate some of those friendships and make friends with people that lift you and carry you to Jesus and don't pull you down and away from him for others of you this morning maybe you're challenged because you are the bad friend and you need to be more like the friends of the paralytic you may have seen how you really need to care more when people really need help and you'll do whatever it takes to help them. Here's the last one. Uh, some of you this morning might feel like the Pharisees. You're a skeptic. You don't really know if God can do what he says he can do. Maybe this morning you need to just simply trust him more and say, God, I believe you. I don't know what the challenge is this morning for you or the application, but whatever it is, it's gonna take some heart work for you as you move forward in your journey with Jesus. And so I wanna close with a prayer over you. So let's do that now. Heavenly Father, today I'm challenged by so many people in this story and I pray for this congregation as we try to move closer to you. May we have friends that push us there. May we believe that you are who you are when we get there and may we see your life change that you do inside of us. God, we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.